This podcast is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, one of the top manufacturers of solar inverters in the world. With 850 employees and offices in 16 countries, the company offers products for every size array, from the smallest homes to the largest solar farms. Keiko has deployed nearly 7 gigawatts of inverters since 1999. If you are interested in adding Keiko inverters to your project, see more about options at keiko-newenergy.com. For the week of March 19th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Greentech Media in Washington, D.C., as always, back in the saddle after a two-week hiatus. This week, we chat with Nancy Fund, a venture capitalist with a very successful portfolio that includes Tesla, SolarCity, BrightSource, and Revolution Foods. Then, did California's building codes really work to lower energy use? We'll look at a controversial working study that concludes they did not. And finally, we'll take a peek at Sun Edison's storage strategy, which includes a recent acquisition of an up-and-coming developer, Solar Grid Storage. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are with me as always to discuss these topics. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions here in D.C. How are you, Catherine? Anything exciting happened in the city while I was gone? I'm doing great, but I missed you guys so much over the last two weeks. And then last week you put up a podcast that on the gang page that wasn't of the gang, but it was still great. It was a good podcast. A policy discussion without you, though, is always incomplete. <laughs> it was actually good to hear somebody else talking about it for a change. <laughs> uh, Jigger Shaw is president of Generate Capital, and he's in San Francisco this week. What about you, Jigger? Anything thrilling happening with you? A solar eclipse. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the solar eclipse tomorrow and all of the mayhem from all of the, you know, power outages we're supposed to have because of solar power. <laughs> What's your perspective on the headlines, the the mayhem? Is this just uh, an engineering challenge that utilities deal with every night when the sun goes down, or is it a real yeah. challenge given the ramp in the middle of the day? Yeah, I honestly think that it's it's going. Nothing interesting is going to happen. The utilities are going to like. You know, through their surrogates, make a whole bunch of fuss about it, and people are going to miss the story on the other end, which is nothing happened. <laughs> Let's turn to our guest now. Uh, Nancy Fund is the founder of DBL Investors, a San Francisco VC firm that focuses on the double bottom line, both profit and uh, social or environmental impact, hence the DBL and the firm's name. She's had a very strong career supporting some of the most well-known clean tech, media, and sustainability firms in their early stages. Uh, she's seen many successes through the double bottom line approach. Many of the companies she's invested in have had strong public exits, including Tesla and SolarCity, where she sits on both boards. And Nancy is in the process of raising a third fund worth $300 million, according to a recent SEC filing. And she can't talk about that with us for legal reasons, but she can talk to us about her experience in the tumultuous world of clean tech venture capital. Nancy, so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you, Stephen, Catherine, and Jigger. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you guys for shining a light on all the exciting things that are happening in our industry and, and giving, giving uh, people an opportunity to, to kind of learn the ins and outs. I think that's so important. Um, just one thing I wanted to um, just correct, I, I'm not on the Tesla board anymore. And, and one company, our, actually our first exit, which you didn't mention, um, we were actually in Powerlight, which was sold to SunPower in, in 2008 That's or right. 2007. So. That's right. 
Well, I want to talk about Tesla. You're not on the board there, but uh, you, of course, are very, very familiar with the company. So in that New York Times deal book piece recently that outlined your career and your philosophy about investment, Tesla CEO Elon Musk was quoted as saying that he was drawn to your style back in 2006, partly because of your emphasis on the double bottom line. Describe what that philosophy is for us and how, how it guides how you select companies. Sure. Well, so our whole mission is to show the world that you can, that there's no sacrifice, that you can deliver top tier, you know, top quartile, top decile returns to your financial investors, just as any traditional VC needs to do. Uh, but you can do more than that. You can drive social, economic and environmental improvement in the regions and the sectors in which you invest. And there's a lot of uh, noise out there that, um, that a lot of people believe want, that you shouldn't mess up the, the financial return by introducing these other variables. Uh, but what we, we have been able to prove over the past uh, over 10 years or so is that actually you can do both. And in fact, companies that pay attention to you know, the build a culture of, of a broader uh, focus on their responsibility and, and not just to shareholders, they actually do better. And they do it because they, they build things like political capital, they, they get community engagement that, that helps with their brand, they, they're able to recruit top tier people who want to do more than just um, you know, make a big difference financially. They, wanna, they want to change the world. And I think that's what Elon meant. I mean, he, he's always saying, you know, it's do you want to, to people, do you want to just build another app for your career or do you want to change the world for the better? And uh, that that's a very compelling proposition, especially to, as we know, the millennials out there that want it all. Well, speaking of building another app, certainly a lot of venture capitalists are pushing into the clean tech light space. They're looking at these software and analytics companies and shying away from the very capital intensive manufacturing companies that marked the first wave of clean tech investment. And I'm just curious how the the, D, the double bottom line approach impacts the way you, you guide money into companies. Um, does that mean that you're more willing to support the companies that are taking bigger risks in, certain, in terms of the technologies they're developing and not just developing that next app? Well, first and foremost, when we invest, we're, we're like any other venture capitalist, we want to optimize our return. So if we don't think a company is going to gr bring us a, a tremendous return, we won't invest in it, even if it you know, has all kinds of uh, social and environmental bells and whistles around it. Because our, our, we don't believe that you, you can really affect change if you don't scale. And so if you have a tiny company that doesn't employ a lot of people, that doesn't sell a lot of stuff, it, it may be great. Maybe it's a good lifestyle company, but it's not going to uh, move the needle. So first and foremost, uh, when we make an investment decision, we we want it you know, there's there's no compromise in terms of wanting it to be a huge win for the portfolio. You know, that doesn't always happen, but you know that we go into every investment wanting that to happen. Um, at the same time, we want portfolio diversification, and you can't get around the fact that uh, if you're, you know, a capital-intensive strategy can build very significant companies. And if we had had a capital-light strategy uh, back in in 2006, we would have missed Tesla 
you know, you can go on and on about um, when you build stuff, when you install stuff, when you have trucks, when you have gigafactories, um, you build, you can build very significant value. And, and that's why these companies are valued so highly, especially relative to their incumbents. And they're, you know, they're really inching in, inching in on the the market cap of of hundred year old companies as as we see them grow. So I think we need it all. I don't think there's you know I would never do a cap you know an only capital light uh, software strategy. That's just missing too much of what's going on. At the same time, as 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 Elon said today in his in his Tesla remarks, uh, software is driving huge value creation and and uh, cost reduction. You know in every sector, but especially in ours. I, you know, I'm curious, Nancy, on the Elon effect, um, whether you actually think that that the returns are really due to the Elon effect, or whether they were due to the underlying business strategies. I think when you look at like Vivint and some of the other companies that have gone public, or have, or Sunrun, or others who we have some sort of understanding of what their private capital, you know, sort of um, their private valuations are, whether the Solar City and Tesla. Um, you know, returns or even SpaceX for that matter, which I think is valued at 11 billion, is you know really a Elon thing as opposed to a hard assets thing. Yeah, I mean that's like asking, you know, was there a Steve Jobs effect? I mean, I think uh, incredibly talented leaders create incredibly valuable companies, and that's that's what you're seeing here. And you know, truth be told, Solar City, you know, it, it has a a different model than Vivint. It's much bigger than Sunrun. I mean, it's it's worth more. Not to say that these aren't other great companies, and we need them all. Uh, and I'm I'm thrilled to hear, you know, as the, the these companies are able to access the public markets. But uh, when you actually look at the scale, you know, I, I forget what it was, but over a third market share um, in, in in residential solar. I mean, that's that's you know head head and tail above the the average. And so I, I just think that we really need to not um, kind of minimize the accomplishment of these companies just because Elon's involved in them, but also celebrate that, you know, we have, you know, we have a leader that's uh, iconic for 21st century needs. And, and, and he's, he's driving not just the companies that he's involved in. He's, you know, there's a, there's an effect that others benefit from the, the draft that he creates. So, I mean, in terms of the paper that you guys uh, just published, um, you know, I've been using some of those talking points for years, and it's it's surprising to me how few people seem to know them. Like, for instance, many of the states have renewable portfolio standards that um, um, have a cap on cost of only one percent. Let's let's st- step back for a second and remind people what that study is. You looked at electricity prices in different states and found that states with the highest portfolios of renewables did not see um, electricity price increases above the national average, correct? Actually, uh, the top 10 states had slightly cheaper average retail electricity prices. Um, I mean, there's not big swings either way, but this this nonsense that, you know, if you go wind or solar that you're going to drive your your electricity prices sky high uh, just is not is not validated when you look at the data um, over um, a 10-year period and so um, it, you know Jigger, it, it, it is surprising why why these myths persist when the data um, you know show otherwise and, and I just want to give a shout out to my co-author Nandi Chabra um, 
who was a DBL intern last summer because he's, he's brilliant and and he did so much of this work. So I just want to make sure that gets the credit there. Um, and so the reason we do these kinds of studies is just to debunk the myths and to give people ammunition because um, and and and. It, we've gotten great response. I mean, we've gotten policymakers, we've gotten media folks. I mean, it's just important to, uh, in this young industry that does face uh, entrenched incumbents uh, with, a, you, know, a, you know, some aspects of monopoly behavior uh, historically, you know, you need to uh, fight the rhetoric with facts. And, and that's kind of why we do these things. Yeah, Nancy, one thing that struck me is that uh, so much of uh, what people beat up um, renewables for is for getting special subsidies, and a lo- and because we do have a n- monopolistic system, you have to have something that creates a market for other things, and a lot of that has to do with policy. So, as as you as you note in the paper, you and your co-author, RPSs at first seemed they as if they were going to drive prices up. It flipped, and the economics changed. And the paper makes the point that by the end of next year, thirty six states will even have grid parity. If you think about that, um, given the context of a monopoly system that we have in our electric industry, what do you? How do you see that um, affecting the investment tax credit? You know, so the investment tax credit would would for the commercial side drop to ten percent at the end of twenty sixteen, and for residential, go away altogether. How do you think that plays into that? If you really do think we may have grid parity by the end of next year. Well, that's a that's a lot of questions wrapped into one. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, and and, and uh, no, it's all all great. Um, and I just want to start by um, reminding people that you know the subsidies that renewables receive are a mere fraction of what nuclear and oil and gas receive. And that's a paper we did several years ago called "What Would Jefferson Do?" And and those oil and gas and nuclear subsidies are the gift that keeps on giving. So this this notion that somehow um, the ITC is is is, is huge subsidy. Um, compared to others, again, that's another myth that, that uh, I think a lot of people now understand is, is uh, inaccurate. Um, but as it, as, as it um, relates to the ITC uh, and whether that will be extended or made permanent or whatever, I think we have some really good news. And it's, it's, um, I've been going to Washington and meeting with um, leg- uh, Congress people and senators uh, of both parties and what's happened is that you know we're kind of be, we're definitely beyond that hyperpartisan period that we were all in you know 2008 to 2012 and thank god that was that was a tough period um, and what what is what's replacing that is um, the job story and when i go in to a republican congressman and show that, hey, did you know you have 600 solar jobs in your district? And that, um, you know, a lot of those are for people that don't have a college education and are, uh, that there's a diverse workforce and these folks are uh, getting a ticket into the middle class and, and you, know, you know, play that whole reel. They, that's very compelling because, poli- you know, jobs are incredibly important to uh, to politics and you know this is an area where we win you know i think all these these little uh, factoids that are coming out you know solar industry is more employs more than you know google and apple uh and twitter combined or whatever that one it is and then the solar industry in california has more employees than the than socal ed pg&e and sempra combined so um this this is what wakes people up and 
uh, I've actually gotten some pretty good reaction and, I, and other people that are beginning to have this discussion uh, because uh, Republicans, you know, while they don't like subsidies, the, the, the kind of subsidy that they do tolerate is a tax credit. I mean, they see, you know, because it's very demand oriented. So I, I wouldn't say that the game is over in any sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And, and we do have, uh, I think, one of the, the strongest cards in the, in the deck in that we are uh, growing jobs and, and they're, they're quality jobs. What kind of changes in technology interest are you seeing? So we're obviously at Green Tech Media, we, you know, we're focusing a lot on the, the analytics on the grid, storage, distribution automation, a lot of demand side management technologies. And we've seen the Department of Energy in its uh, upcoming loan guarantee solicitation really try to focus on some of these next generation grid technologies, not just the, the companies and the prod, the big projects. Um, mm-hmm. Are you, do you have interest in, in that side and are you seeing other VCs bringing more interest to the table? I, th- I think that particular field is, is, really exciting. And there's a ton of interest from investors, from corporates, from regulators. I mean, this is a real solution that promises to accomplish climate change goals, but also save people a lot of money and make for stronger grids. Um, And so, uh, you know, anything from a a water district that, you know, a wastewater treatment plant uh, that needs to uh, reduce its energy footprint um, could could benefit from this approach to office parks to um, you know aggregated residential, especially going into parts of the grid that really are weak and that need need to have a, a finer tuned solution. So I and it, and we had the good news is that you know with Tesla and and the various um, LG the the battery suppliers we have a lot of the technology. It, it will get better, of course, but we can start now. I mean. Um, We've seen this this first SoCal Ed RFP process. These are not pilots. You know, we're way beyond pilots. We're we're doing 50 megawatts here, 85 megawatts there. So I, I think this is this is extremely exciting. I was talking to Susan Kennedy yesterday, who is the CEO of Advanced Microgrid Systems. And she had a funny line. She, I mean, just we were talking about how ubiquitous it's becoming, and she said, "Yeah, microgrids are the new kale." <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Hey Nancy, I'm I'm curious whether you think that um this whole uh education piece that we talked about and the work you're doing in that side as well as the policy piece, you know, there's been a lot of chatter recently as to whether renewable energy people should throw their lot in with climate change people because you know there's a lot of people that love renewable energy who may or may not be fully on board with the climate change message. I wonder, you know, how you come out on that on the the chess board. Well, uh, I think that it's important to remember that we have a lot of different threads in our society uh, and that you, there's not a one size fits all. And maybe this is my anthropology training <laughs> coming into play. But I mean, and because we have state policies rather than then federal policies, we we this is even heightened this effect because obviously in California people are very very concerned about climate change and the comp- the the uh, state since Jerry Brown was governor the first time has been focused on environmental improvement. And that's part of our culture. It's part of our ethos. It's, it's really important to us. And so you see a huge 
um, commonality between climate change activists and renewable folks in California. You know, turn to a, a state like New York, where you know resiliency is more important. Uh, doesn't have kind of the the high tech focus uh, as much of an innov innovation economy. Um, there, it's not as important to couple the two, and they're they're you know it's a more diverse set of 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 motivations that go into it. And then turn to a state like Florida, which I'm so interested in. I think I, I think that's the state to watch right now. Um, you have uh, you know this this recent just bizarre policy that state workers can't talk about climate change, which is already beginning you know, to blow up in their face. And and yet you have, you know, it, it became the third largest state. It, it's uh, uh, past New York last year. And so you have all these people moving into it that are used to uh, solar and kind of modern energy approaches. And yet uh, there's there's no there there when it comes to renewable, uh, distributed renewable policy. So, and, and, and some of these recent alliances between the Sierra Club and the Tea Party. So, you know, I think that that's a state that's in play. Um, and so I, I just think that you have to tailor your message to your audience. And, and, and it's not you don't have to be a climate change um, zealot to 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 believe that renewables are, you know, a big part of our 21st century energy economy. Uh, you can just be you know, you want cheap energy, you want distributed energy, you want personalized, you want consumer choice. You know, it, so I think it's best not to, to, to enforce kind of what the priorities are, but let those flow from um, the regions. And, and because that's where you'll get the biggest change is if you work effectively with the, the local political dynamics. Yeah, Nancy, to get back to your issue of jobs, um, I'm from Virginia, and it's not it's not historically been a big solar state. Um, and my brother lives down in Appalachia, um, where these are people who just live off of air. I mean, they just the coal industry is dying. They're desperate for jobs. Solar would be great. It would provide such good economic benefit. And the way to reach them is exactly how you're talking about, like American independence you know, reducing price. Um, they don't believe in the EPA clean power plan. They think it's going to hurt their economy. And what they don't understand is their economy is already done. They need a new economy. And I mm -hmm. feel like, you know, if we can start changing that conversation so that people in state, in coal states, old coal areas can start realizing that there is something new that they should not be fighting against change, but that this actually can bring in a whole new set of jobs. Exactly. And, and I think increasingly, the state leadership they're they're going to figure this out because as as another state goes solar or, or builds more wind or just develops a 21st century energy profile that's clean and and getting cheaper every day the neighboring states that aren't doing that are, are going to be squeezed and it, it's kind of like uh, because the industry, as it gets bigger, is going to have choices. Okay, we're going to come into your state uh, and bring all these jobs and and answer your your citizens, you know, demand for personalized uh, energy and and choice. Uh, but in order for us to do that, you know, we need to have policies that, that support us. And and I mean, look at what happened uh, coincidentally in Arizona and New Mexico a couple of weeks ago. Two neighboring states, you know, the SRP uh, utility there had very uh, 
uh, heavy-handed and, and kind of expensive policies that they're putting on the solar industry. And so that, you know, that's resulted in Solar City filing a lawsuit. And then two days later, and, and these weren't combined, uh, New Mexico, right next door, you know, Solar City opened an office there. And so that's kind of a tale of cities. It's, it's like, do you want 21st century energy? Do you want 21st century jobs? Or do you want to stay in the 20th century? So wrapping up here, moving from transformative policy back to transformative companies, how far out are you looking when you invest in some of these companies, right? So take SolarCity for an example, as an example. They wanted to enable group buys for solar panels to drive down the cost of developing projects. And now you look at the company, they're a manufacturer, they're planning on developing microgrids, they've started integrating storage, they're starting to really uh, encroach on the utility itself and um, unstick that traditional relationship, becoming a company that I don't think many people saw six or seven years ago. How far out are you looking when you're investing in a company like SolarCity or others? Well, when you when you invest in a com- in a early stage company, you think it you, know, you want it to be transformative, you want it to grow. But I, I will say that we didn't we didn't plan on you know when when they grow this big and, and do this much. It's it's you know to say that was in our investment memo back in two thousand and seven. No, that's <laughs> that wasn't there. Um, but what what you do is when you see that a market is changing and that you have a good management team and you you've got financing and and you're able to execute, then uh, you want to drive to have even bigger impact and you want to draw in also you want to get economies of scale and you want to control your costs as we've talked about in in the event that the ITC isn't um, extended so I think that the, the best companies are adaptive they're nimble uh, they they see ahead uh, beyond what the current skirmish is and that's why you, you're seeing a gigafactory that Tesla's building I mean they know they need more capacity and they're not going to be able to buy it that's why you see this fantastic um, solar city factory being built in Buffalo you know which is a huge win for New York State you know to have Buffalo you know join the the you know knowledge-based economy and, and create a lot of uh, very attractive jobs in a region that needs them, frankly. Uh, but that's, that's, these companies look way ahead. Um, and, and that's, I think, where you need to be. I feel like I need to wrap up with one more question because we do have a lot of startups and graduate students and people who are getting into the industry, uh, either building companies or looking to work for early stage companies. And I'm just wondering, aside from the usual, like a good team, and uh, a strong business plan where you're attacking a, an immediate problem. What are you looking for when you're evaluating companies um, that nobody's ever heard of? Well, the, the two things you mentioned are, are super important. I, I would say also we're looking for teams that understand that they can't do everything at once. I mean, what we just talked about for, for Solar City and Tesla, that's, that's happened over many, many years. Uh, so sometimes people come in and they, they're just a little too ambitious too soon. And so what I would suggest to folks is that they, they temper their, you know, their enthusiasm for, for ch- changing the world and, and solving a big problem and making a big company with a little bit of realism in that, okay, you, you have to walk before you run. So tell us how you're going to, you know, get from zero to, to 10 million or uh, installations or, or dollars or whatever your marker is before you tell us how you're going to get to 500. And because the, the way that 
the world is these days is you, you have to prove to a certain level that you can accomplish uh, part of your goal. And then if you do that, people will give you, you know, will invest more money to get you um, to the next stage. But just so what I'm saying is, I, you know, don't come in saying you're going to change it all at once and, and be a little more uh, measured in, in the way you, you plan um, your capital expenditures. So because in this climate still, people are looking for um, folks that are capital efficient above all else. Indeed. Nancy Fund is a founder of DBL Investors, where she's also a managing partner. She joined us from her office in San Francisco. A real pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Stephen and Catherine and Jigger. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's wonderful. Thanks, Nancy. Before we get into the second half of our show, I want to talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. All you solar installers and tech heads, listen up. Keiko is proud to announce its next generation single phase inverter for residential and small commercial projects called the TL1 series. It comes in four different sizes and six different feature packages to give you exactly the right inverter for your needs. It features an easy-to-use graphical interface and an integrated web server, an improved power density to decrease installation time and reduce equipment needs near the inverter. And it also has dual maximum PowerPoint tracking channels to maximize energy harvest when facing shading or orientation challenges. If you want to see all the specs or contact the company about more information, click on over to keiko newenergy.com. California has long been seen as a national and global leader in energy efficiency. In the 1970s, the state adopted two policies hailed by efficiency advocates, decoupling, which separates utility profits from kilowatt-hour sales of electricity, and building codes that beef up energy efficiency requirements for homes, businesses, and factories. And those policies have seemingly worked. There's a pretty famous chart out there that you've likely seen comparing per capita electricity consumption in California to the rest of the country. And starting in the 1970s, the two start to diverge. California flatlines while nationwide energy consumption grows. But a new working paper from Arik Levinson, an economist at Georgetown University, concludes that efficiency policy actually played a very small role in that change. Levinson says that it was population shifts and demographic changes that actually changed California's energy consumption. His study was featured in a recent Freakonomics podcast, sparking debate about how applicable California's experience is to the rest of the country. So uh, what should we believe? Were California's energy policies effective, or are efficiency advocates giving them way too much credit? So none of us are economists, uh, but we're going to uh, try to make some sense of these competing views. And I will link to both the uh, Levinson study and some of the counter studies on the website, and you can sift through those and see what you think. Jigger, I'll turn to you first on this. Um, what did you make of Levinson's findings and, and the podcast itself? I mean, he basically says that only around 10 to 12 percent of the change in energy consumption in the residential sector can be attributed to efficiency policy. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I read, I mean, I listened to the podcast and I also read um, David Goldstein's response and Stephen Adele's response and others. And, you know, I, I, I certainly believe that Eric um, really screwed himself with this study. I mean, I think that the study was not well thought out. It didn't really meet the highest academic standards in terms of building well, it is a, a working solid, study. Well, working study or hatchet job, it's sort of both. But I think that at the end of the day, I mean, the, the the broader piece here is the defensive nature, I thought, that 
NRDC and others had in in their responses. You know, I do think that 40 years on, it should be obvious to everyone that energy efficiency is good. Um, And it's not obvious to everyone. We're still trying to parse through the data to see whether the taxpayer's money was actually spent appropriately. And after years of subsidies, it's not clear that the energy efficiency retrofit market is one that sort of can live on its own, like the solar market and others are starting to do. And so I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out where I land on this. I don't think Eric's study is a was a great piece of work, but I do think it sparked an interesting conversation. Yeah, so I, it's probably helpful to summarize the findings pretty quickly. So uh, Arik Levinson looks at three independent factors. I'll try to summarize these in the best way I can. Um, and he puts these three factors together into another analysis comparing how all three interact with, another, with one another. The first factor is, is population shift, and he says that because regions like the Southwest – an area where energy consumption is much higher than in California and in the Northeast, um, it, it saw the greatest surge in population growth, and that impacts the numbers relative to California. He also says that the number of people in, in California households were higher than in other states, leading to lower per capita energy consumption. And finally, he says that incomes grew in California. Because income grew, incomes grew in California, energy consumption stayed flat because of the relatively mild climate in the state compared to other states. It's very confusing the way he puts these together. Um, But altogether, he says these factors made up around 90% of the trend. Now, I will say that he admits in the Freakonomics podcast that he could be completely wrong as well. Uh, And as a working study, he's open to changes to his methodology. With that said, I'm not sure I would characterize this as a hatchet job, Jigger. What in those assumptions makes you think that it's a hatchet job? Well, I look, think the I th- whole set. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Catherine. No, go for I it. think the whole setup of Freakonomics is like what you thought really was true is actually not true. So that's how they set up the whole show. They've done this for a lot of different topics. Like common understanding is not really true. And so it totally depends on the questions you're asked. It depends on how you ask the question, what assumptions you're using, and all the metrics you're counting. So, um, Stephen, what he says is – How much energy do building codes save? Well, it's like, how do you attribute cost savings to just energy codes? Well, there are a lot of public policy things in, in, you know, at stake. There are are energy codes or equipment standards, education, labeling, financial incentives, rates, all kinds of other things that go into energy efficiency. And building codes only affect, they don't affect 80% of the load of the building in the first place. They affect heating, air conditioning, water heating, a little tiny bit of lighting. But most of that is in California is with natural gas and he didn't even look at natural gas. So there were a whole lot of things that were completely left out of the study. That's that's exactly right. That's the hatchet job, right? When you listen to the Freakonomics podcast or read his paper, what he makes you believe is that the state of California promised everyone that the building codes would save 80% of energy which is not what they promised in any way, shape, or form. It was 80% of a very tiny amount of like 5 to 8% of the energy. And, you know, and largely, you know, when you look at the studies, they have actually reduced that portion of the energy by 15 to 2.5%, so which on a, a macro basis, which is aligned with sort of what they said. But I, 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 so that's the hatchet job. And uh, frankly, working with the National Economic um, 
uh, counsel at, at the Obama administration. I got this question over and over and over from Brian DC and Arik and all these other guys would literally just make stuff up about energy efficiency and absolutely took a negative view on energy efficiency during the era stimulus bill and for all the periods after that. So it's not surprising he would come up with it. I think the broader conversation that's more interesting to me, though, is that I do think that energy efficiency suffers from policy fatigue. You're talking about billions and billions of dollars of subsidies that are going into energy efficiency every year. Today, you have LED lighting that has a four-year payback, but many people are compelled to provide 60 to 80% subsidies. I'm not sure that energy efficiency policy people, whether it's NRDC or ACEEE, are sufficiently introspective about whether their stuff has worked over the last 40 years. You will admit, as will I, that the models, the mathematical models that people use to measure efficiency are sometimes way off and that it's very hard to determine savings. And so Arik Levinson is coming in and saying there are all these other external factors. I could be wrong here, but there are these external factors that are just as important in driving variations in energy consumption relative to the rest of the country. And I think it's very healthy to come in and ask whether those are just as important as the codes. So I don't see this as a hatchet job at all. And frankly, he doesn't say that building codes are bad. He says he supports them. And that they're useful for creating strong standards and creating confidence that, you know, builders are going to build good projects. Uh, But he's saying that the results aren't clear here. And I think we can all agree, particularly in the residential sector, that the models do not show clear results. And that, you know, the measured impact on energy that we've seen in California may not appear in other states. And so his point is, if we're going to develop national policy around energy efficiency, can we apply this to other states in the exact same way as advocates say we can? And, you know, I think that he raises a lot of important questions about whether that you can recreate this policy. Well, so then you actually have to do the study correctly. You have to use the right factors. And you can't just say there's California and then there's everybody else because – other people are do- other states are doing things as well. It's not just California that's doing things. And often, when you set a standard standards as California has does done for all kinds of things, whether it's an appliance, so appliance companies manufacturers will have to make something for California. They're not going to just in most cases, make it for California, let's say, hey, let's just make the whole stock more efficient. And then you're selling it in Nevada, New Mexico, everywhere else in the country. So there's this bleed over effect. And California has really been a leader on it. Um, But and it's been incremental. It's not been like they did it one day. And that was it. It's been incremental over time, as things have evolved, as technologies have changed, you know, plug load has grown. But as plug load has grown, we figured out how to make those loads more efficient. So televisions are now more efficient than they used to be, computers, other things. And I feel like, you know, to, to say California versus everybody else and did it work in California and will it work everywhere else? I just think that's that's not looking at the problem in the right way. Yeah, you know, I just think that this is a very typical sort of approach um, that you know was was intended to be incendiary. When you look at the the way his the the title of his article was framed, I mean, it was just intended to be incendiary. And if you're going to do that, you actually have to follow through um, and say, well, I meant to be incendiary because I'm going to raise ten million dollars to actually study this problem properly and really get to the bottom line. He's not doing that. He's doing a very traditional breakthrough institute approach, which is here. Let me just throw a firebomb in there, and oh, by the way, I'm off to another issue. Now. I could not 
disagree more. It's a working study. He has sent it around to the largest energy efficiency institutions in the country and asked for their feedback and has said that he will consider it in his next iteration of the analysis. It's not like that. It's not a firebomb that he's just thrown in. The Freakonomics podcast itself framed it in a way that makes it seem like more of a fireball issue. But in fact, he's saying there are all these other factors. Perhaps we, you don't agree with it, but I think he's reaching out and saying, let's look at all these other factors to see if, how effective energy efficiency really oh, is. I, it's, yeah, it's not that I don't agree with it. It's honestly poor work. When you look at the selective statistics that he used and manipulated by accident, hopefully, because I think he just didn't know any better. I mean, he just didn't do the right amount of work. I mean, honestly, I just can't have respect for the work that he did here. Yeah, if you're going to do something, Stephen, that's a working paper and you're not 100% sure of the way you're doing your analysis, you don't put it out in public and say, hey, this is just a working paper. I mean, what, and, to, and to give him credit, he did reach out to people, but it's very public. So Energy Innovation, Hal Harvey's company, was reached out to and he gave a very thoughtful response and said, here are the things you need to think about. The way you framed it is completely wrong and here are things you've left out. But this has all been... This has all been litigated publicly rather than sending it to him and saying, hey, you know, I'm trying this thing, you know, before I do doing some peer review. That is not the way it's been done. This he's gotten out way in advance of of, um, you know, having it reviewed and having it done in a way that's really correct. And the problem with that is that the people who don't like codes and standards, are they going to pick up everything he says and they're going to use it? Well, I'm the farthest thing from an economist, but I think that this is an extraordinarily healthy debate to be, to be had. As I talk to more people in the residential efficiency space and people who are working on the regulatory level, they will admit over and over again that people just don't have any idea how much energy we're saving. And that energy efficiency advocates hold these codes and targets as gospel and claim that they that – they, always have a certain level of impact. And I think that you should have an open discussion about these types of demographic climate factors that no one, frankly, is really talking about in the energy efficiency industry. I'm not necessarily defending this. I'm not necessarily defending the conclusion of the study because, honestly, I found myself more confused reading this study and the the counter arguments uh, than before I read them. But I will say that Given the amount of conversations I've had with people in the efficiency industry who are worried about the fact that they're not tracking efficiency properly, I'm all about uh, a, a public dialogue and study like this. Yeah, look, I agree with you. I mean, I've been one of the harshest critics of NRDC for years, right, just because I think that they have this holier-than-now attitude about energy efficiency. In fact, for about five years in the middle, from 2003 to 2008, they were almost anti-solar because they they thought that they were – that energy efficiency should go first. And so, look, I'm in complete agreement with you about having the conversation. I just think that this study doesn't doesn't hold itself to any sort of rigorous academic standards, even for a working paper, to deserve any credit for starting this conversation in a healthy way. And Stephen, I think you actually can measure the results. We have really sophisticated tools for measurement, and we can measure now all of the impacts of policies over the years. So I don't think that you can just say we haven't really, we can't really do it because we can. One final thing that I want to mention that he didn't talk about was the impact of price. Right. He, he admits that he doesn't have this factor in the study from an economist point of view. You know, you want to know whether California's experience can be recreated and and price, which uh, is one of the easiest factors to measure, was not really included in the analysis. So 
Retail electricity prices have grown by 14% in real terms in California. Well, they fell 9% in real terms nationwide. And that, of course, will have a major impact on consumption, which Levinson purposely leaves out in order to focus on you know, these climate and demographic shifts. So if price were really the primary driver, that would actually be a good thing from an economist's point of view because it is e- easily replicable in other states. And so I, I was just a little bit confused as to why he completely left out that factor. Again, pointing to poor academic work. <laughs> well, you know what they say about economists— if all of them were laid end to end, they'd never reach a conclusion. <laughs> Ooh, boom. That was George Bernard Shaw. On to our final subject. We're going to talk about storage in the solar industry. So the push for storage uh, among solar companies continues. While we were on break, Sun Edison announced it bought solar grid storage, a company deploying short duration storage systems with solar PV systems. The company was co-founded by solar industry veterans. The CEO, Tom Layden, ran PowerLight's East Coast business before it was bought out by SunPower. And uh, President Chris Cook was uh, one of Jigger's co-founders at SunEdison, and that puts him back into the company. SolarGrid Storage is operating exclusively in the East Coast PJM market, as far as I can tell. Uh, And that's where it gets compensated for frequency regulation services, and it can help uh, the company drive down the total cost of a PV project by sharing the inverter. I spoke with Sun Edison CEO Ahmad Shatila just a few days before the acquisition was announced, and he talked about the company's plans to expand the solar storage business model outside of PJM, both in California and internationally. And here's just a brief clip of his comments. We are looking at certain markets in the U.S., like California, like PJM, and trying to experiment with such a system. The other thing also we're looking at is, is for example, in Germany. By 2019, if you don't have storage, just solar wouldn't make sense. It will stop making sense based on the trajectory of the feed-in tariff for residential in that country and the pricing of, of, um, of residential. So that's how we're going after it. What, what we do not want to do, please, is go and be a battery company. That's not our cup of tea. We think there, there are enough manufacturing companies that would do a great job, albeit in Korea or China, and U.S. and Silicon Valley, that will do enough innovation where that technology will be low-cost enough for us to use. So Sun Edison is sticking to its roots as a developer, now with storage, and not trying to be a manufacturer. Um, Catherine, I'll turn to you first on this acquisition. As our resident storage market expert, did you see this one coming? Um... And I think you have a bit of disclosure here, too, as well. Yeah, well, I work with Sun Edison in a lot of different ways. And Sun Edison is actually on the board of the Energy Storage Association has and has been on it for some time. So they have an interest in storage. We, I, I've known they've had an interest in storage. I wasn't completely surprised when they acquired solar grid storage. I mostly work with them on their grid scale, their utility scale, wind and solar, because I was working for First Wind before they were acquired. Um, the interesting thing about storage, and this is a great team, it's a great company. I went to their, I've, I've been to several of their kickoff events, to their um, opening of different projects. And they're, it's a great group. The trick with storage, it does solve a lot of problems. I consider it the, the bacon for the grid. It just makes everything better. But 
the issue is it's not getting compensated in very many places. The only thing it could be compensated for on the wholesale side, as you mentioned, is frequency regulation. And so that's why they've been focused on PJM. Certainly in California, there is a market that's being created by their goals in California of 1.3 gigawatts. And, and I'm sure there will be other states that are opening up markets. But the trick is trying to get storage to be compensated for all the different things it can do. And once it's valued for those multiple streams, it will be much more cost effective and you'll be able to build it out and scale. Um, and I know FERC is, is looking at frequency response, uplift, capacity market. So there's a lot of stuff going on. But right now, the market is fairly limited. Well, if storage is the bacon of the grid and microgrids are the new kale, storage on a microgrid is just a delicious kale bacon dish that we need more of. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Jigger, uh, what's your perception of solar grid storage here? They haven't announced a new project for like uh, 12, 18 months, something like that. What has held them back? Are they being held back, really? Um, you know, one of our analysts, Ravi Mangani, suggested it was capital availability and said that Sun Edison will help them get a much lower cost of capital. Was that a factor? Why have they been silent on new projects lately? Yeah, I mean, so my disclosure is I was the first investor in solar grid storage, and then um, I gave them a few million bucks in project finance through the Clean Feet Fund to deploy their capital. So I know exact projects. So I know exactly <laughs> that their projects were were financed with high cost money. But I, you know, I think that the the the, the the challenge is I'm a vegetarian, so I'm not sure I like the bacon part. I am too. I'm sorry, Jigger. <laughs> but, uh, I am too, so I would have that <laughs> vegan bacon. Hey, the, exactly. the bacon was your bacon. analogy. <laughs> bacon, bacon, bacon. But I think um, – but, you know, I think that one of the things that solar grid storage learned is that solar plus storage is actually not that useful. Um, and the reason for that is what their initial thesis was that the inverter could be shared between the solar and the storage. And what they found is, is that it's actually not quite true, that, like, you can't really bid the storage capacity into the PJM while the sun is shining because the solar needs that inverter capacity. And you actually get paid more for frequency response generally during the daytime than you do at night. So it doesn't so the loss of those hours in terms of bidding the capacity into the PJM market um, didn't get compensated for by being able to use a 30% tax credit. So I think what you're finding, at least for us as investors and others, is that the solar plus storage finance opportunity is a lot less attractive than solar and storage co-located at the same place with their own inverters. So then what do they offer Sun Edison? I think they offer them a lot of lessons learned. I mean, the bottom line is, is that like, this was an aqua hire, I think. You're talking about three of the most successful people in the solar industry. Dan Dobbs, who is also a founder there, was our 10th employee at Sun Edison. And, is he your um, CFO? Yeah. And so then Gary Robinson's there as well, who was our controller at Sun Edison. So, I mean, this is a dream team of people that came together. So I think it's a great aqua hire. I also think that they had some really good lessons learned at the Navy Yard project they did, et cetera. And the problem with storage, at least in my opinion, is that almost everyone I talk to in the storage industry is way over their skis. They make huge promises that they actually haven't yet delivered on and aren't quite sure how to deliver on. These guys have actually tried to deliver. They failed a little bit. They succeeded a little bit. But I think they have really real-world experience that's going to help Sun Edison um, with the next stage of development. I totally, yeah, I totally agree with Jigger. I, um, I mean, what we have found is that those um, like independent power producers who are building uh, grid scale and they they may have something at on the same you know land that 
you know, that houses a wind project, it's not completely attached to it. It still is providing services to the grid. So right now, I still think that the, the highest value that storage facilities can get is providing grid services, which means it doesn't have to be, you know, next to or located with anything else. And the issue is there just aren't any... Um, any kind of incentives other than those few that we mentioned. There aren't any tax incentives. There's nothing out there for storage yet. And I think um, that's going to have to come along and then the the case can be made and you can make a much better um, economic case for it. What about the potential in key international markets? So Shatila mentioned Germany, where the feed-in tariff rate is lower than the retail rate or will soon be lower than the retail rate. So it makes sense to engage in self-consumption and install a storage system, which is why you've seen a lot of activity there. Sun Edison has been very active in Chile and throughout Latin America, where you see mines consuming very expensive electricity. So storage could potentially be a good application there. Um, Are those better near-term opportunities, you think? Yes. I mean, I absolutely think that basically where storage is replacing a diesel generator um, there's actually a huge amount of opportunity. What happens in the mining industry and other places is when you put a huge amount of solar in, you actually significantly reduce the capacity factor uh, of the diesel, which actually means that the same amount of maintenance cost has to be paid for the diesel, but you get far less kilowatt hours out of it. So if the cost per kilowatt hour from diesel was 50 cents a kilowatt hour before, now it's a dollar a kilowatt hour after you put the solar in there. So it's actually very cost effective to oversize the solar and actually just put it in storage. So I think you see that from reports from the Carbon War Room and others that have, I think, shown those economics. And so, look, I think it's a good purchase from Sun Edison. I don't think it cost them that much. And I think it was, um, they got a fantastic team and, um, you know, hopefully have marching orders now in terms of how to commercialize this. Yeah. And I think it's really smart when, um, companies are investing in what I'm going to call flexible capacity, um, technologies and applications, which is like all those things that could really substitute for traditional generation. So whether it's efficiency, demand response, storage, a whole host of things, microgrids, like advanced microgrid solutions is doing this whole aggregation play. I mean, all of those, if we can provide some kind of product that you can be compensated for for flexible capacity, that would make a huge difference. And that'll help us solve a lot of problems, congestion, you know, meeting 111D, a lot of things that we're seeing are happening now on the grid, I think can be resolved with a lot of these technologies. And so I think it's smart for a company to invest in this way. I think that's the end of the show. So let's just tell our listeners something they don't know briefly. And Catherine, you start first. Okay, great. I know Nancy had alluded to the fact that Congress is starting to get along better. And, uh, you know, from the news reports of the different things they're trying to pass, it doesn't sound that way. But I actually believe that that's true. So there was a hearing on March 4th in House Energy and Commerce and a hearing on the 17th in the Senate and Senate Energy and Natural Resources. And these are the authorization committees for energy policy, not for tax policy. They both want to do, and both of these hearings were on grid innovation, and there was just a ton of of talk on distributed generation uh, on both sides of the aisle. Um, And and there were House members that are Tea Party members who were riveted to people talking about grid innovation for the whole two and a half hours. It was absolutely amazing. I think we're going to be able to come around a few things uh, collectively 
on energy policy, um, and it could include infrastructure policy, innovation, energy efficiency. There are a few things we can do, and I think there is going to be some sort of energy bill this year. One thing I had to mention because it just was announced this morning was that President Obama just released another executive order for federal facilities to reduce greenhouse gas levels by 40% in 10 years, 40% below 2008 levels in 10 years, and 30% of renewable energy uh, sources by 2025. So that was a big piece of news this morning. Enlighten us, Jigger. Well, um, so Stephen, you and I had a sort of informal banter on our last podcast, I think on Community Solar, which was confusing some of our uh, listeners. So I figured I'd just clarify it. Um, you know, in Minnesota and in Colorado, I think Excel Energy was generally, you know, sort of went along with the adoption of community solar in both markets. Um, when the Minnesota RFP revealed that 400 megawatts had been applied for, and I think there's another 400 that wants to apply for being in the queue, I think Excel Energy did get a little scared and it is absolutely doing things now to sort of scale back some of the um, size of these programs. But I don't think Excel was a bad actor here. I just think that they um, were – we're surprised, greatly surprised by this. And, you know, frankly, I mean, going back to Catherine's point, I mean, I think Tom Kuhn was surprised when he did the deal in 2008 in the federal government to give us an eight-year extension on the ITC in exchange for the utilities getting access to the ITC. I don't think he knew that solar was going to take off the way they did. And, you know, I think he's not sure. He sort of regrets that decision. And, you know, this is going to be, I think, par for the course for some time. So I came back uh, from my trip to a very sudden collapse of GigaOM, the uh, popular tech blog that I'm sure many people are familiar with. They covered energy issues along with a lot of consumer tech stuff. And although it was late, they weren't really a direct competitor of green tech medias given our differences in coverage areas. But uh, Katie Fehrenbacher was their well-known energy reporter. And there was certainly some crossover with some of the stuff that we were covering. So for those who don't know, on March 9th, I think it was, GigaOM announced pretty much out of the blue, that it was laying off all of its writers and shutting its doors. And uh, Recode has done some really great reporting on the, the uh, matter. It, it sounded like none of the writers saw this coming. So, you know, my sincere sympathies go out to the writers there. I mean, I couldn't imagine how that would feel. Uh, the site apparently leveraged, leveraged itself quite heavily, raising $40 million in equity and debt, and it eventually collapsed when it couldn't pay off the debt. So I, I bring this up. Uh, firstly, because no one ever revels in the demise of a competitor, especially this way. But I mention it because running a media company uh, in the internet age is really tough, uh, especially like a smaller mid-sized company. You're constantly looking for new ways to fund the journalism, which is expensive and hard to pay for with just standard advertising, and hence why GTM has made pretty deep investments in other areas of the business to support the journalism. And for the, the, you know, the medium and small internet publishers, it makes sense to focus less on raising a lot more money and actually finding ways to build your business through organic revenue. And I know that runs counter to the way many VCs who are looking for the large quick returns see the world, um, which was the world that GigaOM was operating in too. But in an age when you're competing with so many publications for eyeballs and attention, it's really rare that you grow at a speed that warrants raising a lot more money and leveraging yourself. So just a little tidbit on how we see the world, and some thoughts for any media professionals out there. Yeah, I talked to Katie Fehrenbacher about it, and um, you know, she was the first employee at GigaOM. 
Oh, I didn't realize and, that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was sort of a, a slap in the face to basically be told that day that you have two weeks notice. Yeah, but, um, unbelievable. Um, well, she's but, terrific. Know, I'm sure she'll land yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, she's got a bunch of stuff. But if our listeners have stuff for Katie Fehrenbacher, call her. Yeah. Indeed. So we'll cut it off there. Thanks a lot for joining us, and thanks to our sponsor, Keiko New Energy, for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. You can find links to the stories we discussed in the podcast. Uh, they're on the notes there at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Feel free to leave comments while there. You can also suggest story ideas by sending an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. For any solar folks out there, don't forget our annual solar summit is coming up from April 14th through the 16th in Phoenix, and I'll be hosting a debate there on whether regulated utilities should own residential solar. That should be fun, and uh, if you can't make it, we'll feature that on the podcast that week or the week after. Catherine, have a wonderful weekend. Great to catch back up with you. Yeah, thanks. You too. Jigger, enjoy your West Coast trip. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. I'll see everybody at the Vote Solar Fundraiser tonight in San Francisco. Oh, have fun. Wish I could be out there. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.